0: Today I am starting the series on Moses, the life of Moses. So I'm starting with Exodus where his life begins, Exodus chapter one, verses five through 22. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built python, and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. There's that word again. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiprah and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, things change. Sometimes they change for the better. Often they change for the worse. But change comes and often it comes swifter than we think it's coming. It certainly did for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You see, Joseph had come generations before, approximately 200 years before. And Egypt had given Israel and Joseph the very best they had to offer. Pharaoh gave the land of Goshen to Joseph's family, which was prime real estate in Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I will provide for you and your children. In one moment, talking about things changing, Israel went from nomads in a famine-riddled world fighting for their existence into the good life. Things change. Joseph's family enjoyed political favor and prosperity in the most powerful and civilized empire in the world. But things can change just as swiftly the other way. After 200 or so years, it says, a pharaoh came to power who simply had never heard of Joseph. The historical records were kept by Egyptian priests, I'm sure who had no interest in keeping alive the memory of someone who did not worship Egyptian gods. No doubt Joseph's memory was erased from the official records. The people of Israel quickly fell into disfavor, it says. One reason was they were shepherds. Egyptians were cattle people. They hated shepherds. They thought shepherds were uncivilized lowlifes. The Egyptians thought these Hebrew hicks were an embarrassment to their nation's image. A second reason they fell into disfavor was because the descendants of Joseph were quite good at making babies. Some of their descendants now attend this church. And the faster the Hebrews grew, the bigger the threat they were perceived to be. So the Hebrew people were conscripted and enslaved. They were used to build the cities of Python and Ramses. They were the labor force that built some of the great monuments of the Egyptian empire. The slave masters saw their job was not only to build these cities and enslave these people. They felt like their job was to be ruthless that word is repeated twice when they described them, was to afflict the people of Israel. Because, you see, they were sending a message. They wanted these Jews put in their place. They wanted to show them who was boss. Things change, don't they? And change comes quickly. You see, this is a first-hand story of the process of oppression. First, there is disdain for the shepherds. These people are inferior. And then the disdain leads to fear. These folks are a national security risk. And then the fear leads to enslavement and oppression. Imagine that. One group of people thinking another group of people is an inferior and enslaving them. Thank goodness it all stopped right there, right? And then it led to more than slavery. It led to infanticide. They started killing babies. And then the infanticide leads to out-and-out murder and genocide. Does this sound familiar? History keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? Just ask the folks of Nazi Germany if something like this can happen in our day. Or the people of communist Russia. Or the people of Rwanda. Things can change for the worse, and it can happen faster than the blink of an eye. You see, rulers have figured out a long time ago that one way to get power and stay in power is to find someone to be your nation's scapegoat. For Pharaoh, it was the Jews. For the Roman Empire, for a number of of Roman emperors, it was Christians. We were the scapegoats for a long time. For the Nazis, it was the Jews again. For certain political leaders, it is now the Mexicans and Central Americans. These leaders all say the same thing. Times are hard. It must be somebody else's fault. The American middle class is slowly shrinking. It could be because companies are shipping jobs overseas. Or machines are doing what humans used to do. Or taxes are too high and driving people out of the country. But no, no, it's none of those things. The real problem is the Mexicans. They are rapists and criminals and drug runners. We need to put up a wall and run them all out of town. Of course, the vast majority of those Mexicans coming across the border are women and children. And the vast majority are God-fearing Catholics. And the vast majority are people who believe in the American dream a lot more than a lot of Americans do. And they are pro-life and hard-working people. And the agribusiness in this country cannot survive without them, nor the meatpacking industry. And the crime rate among the 11 million or so undocumented people, Mexicans, is actually lower than that among the average citizenry of America. And that over the last six years, here's something most Americans don't know. The undocumented Mexican population is shrinking in this country, not growing. People are leaving Mexicans, Undocumented Mexicans are leaving the country faster than they're coming into it. But who cares about those facts? People and leaders need scapegoats so that we don't have to look in the mirror and so politicians can get votes. By the way, almost half of the illegal aliens that come into this country fly in by jet. If you want to build a wall high enough, to keep out illegal aliens, it needs to be approximately 35,000 feet high. But God, the God of Israel keeps blessing his enslaved people. And the main way he does it is he multiplies the oppressed. Instead of shrinking in population like Pharaoh hoped, the Hebrew people keep multiplying. The babies just keep coming. The God of all life keeps blessing his people with more life. The more they try to exterminate the Hebrews, the faster they spread. By the way, the same same thing has happened throughout history. The faster the communists tried to kill the people of God called the Christians in the 20th century, the faster the Christians spread. The same thing happened with the Roman Empire. The faster the, the emperors tried to squash out Christianity, the faster it spread. The same thing happened in China. By the way, the interesting thing about China is that you know for a long time Christianity was illegal missionaries were kept out bibles were banned christian leaders were imprisoned and all that stuff and and, and the Christ, and the church kept growing by 30,000 people a day anyway but now the chinese because there's so many christians and because of you know things are liberalizing some a woman after the first sermon she came up to me and she showed me a bible and at the bottom of the bible it said made in china <laughs> If there's a buck to be made, never mind, anything. The last thing God will, I want you to hear this, the last thing God will let someone do is exterminate his people. He blesses faster than men can curse. He gives life faster than death can be doled out. So Pharaoh's plans are blowing up. So Pharaoh ups the ante. He calls on the head of Israel's midwife corps, Shiprah and Pua, to enact the policy of infanticide. Kill the male babies as they're coming out of the birth canal. Don't even give them a chance to cry. Suffocate them as they enter the world. Never let their cries be heard. Probably the closest thing we have to this gory practice right now is called partial birth abortion. Snuff out the life of a viable, fully formed baby and do it in the name of women's rights and public health. And I know there are times when, because of a mother's health, a baby needs to be taken in the third trimester. But my question is, is do we have to suck its brains out with a high-powered vacuum hose? If a baby is viable and could be adopted by people desperate for children, why do we do such things? 90% of all Americans, much less Christians, 90% of all Americans think this is a gory practice that needs to stop. So why does an extreme minority control this issue? How am I doing? I'm trying to offend everybody. Are you? Okay, good. I'm glad I I've got you all. Left, right. All right, all right. By the way, I, I, I do need to tell you, I, I, I had to say this in the first, I am not a Republican or a Democrat. I hate them both. <laughs> I think both major political parties in this country are bought and paid for. I think they are controlled by special interests. I think decency and what's good for the country and the will of the people skipped town a long time ago and we have a broken government because of it. That's just my opinion. That is not showing political favoritism. It's not favoritism if you hate them all. It's interesting to note that the first heroes in the book of Exodus are women. Not typical heroes in that day. Shiprah and Pua, I believe, are the first practitioners of civil disobedience in scripture. They refuse to do Pharaoh's dirty work for him. They lie to him. They say these Hebrew women are so healthy, they are so vigorous, they are so fertile that the babies just pop out before we can get to them. It's like watching one of those popcorn poppers in a theater, boom bada boom. These women feared God more than they feared the unjust laws of Pharaoh. As Augustine put it, they they were rewarded for their piety, not their deceit. But we have no reason to judge them. Because, folks, if you're not in the same situation they're in, what would you do? I tell you, if I'm a Jew in a basement and the SS comes for me, I hope the Christians up there lie and say, no, he's not down there. And I'm not advocating lying. No lie. These women reverence life, because they believed all life came from the God who was the giver of life. They would not give in to the age-old excuse, we were just following orders. We worship God above all else. Submission to government authority has its limits. That's what these women show us. As Peter told the government of his day, when it forbade him from preaching Jesus, he said, we must obey God rather than men. Submitting to the government is a never carte blanche deal with us Christians. If the government says throw Jews in an oven, we have to say we serve God rather than men. If the government says kill your enemies and Jesus says love them, we must serve God rather than men. If the government enacts racist, systematic evil policies, we must obey God rather than men. shiprah and Puer were ordinary women asked to obey God while doing their job. They did not raise an army, they did not start a movement, they did not build a college, they just obeyed God in the context of their everyday lives. God needs people obeying Him in the everyday, in the normal activities of life. There is no such Thing as insignificant obedience in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as insignificant obedience. One writer said in the Old Testament an official named Zerubbabel. How many of you remember Zerub, good old Zerubbabel? Okay, I'm moving on. He was trying to get the temple rebuilt after years of exile and neglect in Jerusalem. And he was able to manage only a meager start which was quickly overwhelmed by opposition from without and depression from within. He felt discouraged and like a failure. But God sends him a prophet, the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah said these words to Zerubbabel. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work again. Do not despise small beginnings A widow passes by the treasury box at the temple. She places in two small coins all that she has. She knows it will be the smallest gift given that day. That humanly speaking, it can make no difference at all. That from her perspective, it was almost foolhardy to throw it in. She could not know that one man was watching her. That he would say she actually gave more than anyone else. She could not know that her story would inspire millions of people to sacrificially give billions of dollars over the centuries. Two little pennies. Do not despise small things. For we do not know what is small in God's eyes. Spiritual size is not measured in the same way that physical size is. What unit shall we use to measure love? And yet real love is more real than anything else. When Jesus said that the widow gave more, it wasn't just a pretty saying or, or a preacher being using hyperbole. It was a spiritually accurate measurement, the writer says. We just didn't know the yardstick. No project is so great that God doesn't, that it doesn't need God and no project is so small that it does not interest God. Sipra and Pua loved God. And they loved babies. They were the Patty Pattersons of their day. And they subverted the evil plans of an empire. Everyday obedience changes the world in ways we cannot imagine. Ordinary is extraordinary in God's hands. Small is big when the Spirit uses it and multiplies it. There is no insignificant obedience by anybody. And after the plans for infanticide are thwarted, Pharaoh ups the ante again. Just kill all the male babies. Forget infanticide. Let's go to genocide. Throw the male babies of the Hebrews into the Nile. This is significant because the Nile was Egypt's source of life and prosperity. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. In essence, the Egyptians were saying, let the God of the Nile decide who lives and who dies. In this way, the Egyptians could say, we didn't kill him; Our God did. And then they could wash their hands of the whole affair and quiet their consciences. It's amazing what we humans do in order to not look at ourselves in the mirror, isn't it? We rationalize, we excuse, we blame, we numb. They say the first casualty of war is the truth. Actually, the first casualty of all sin is the truth. We must lie to ourselves before we can do other sins. Evil cannot stand the light of truth, so truth must be silenced. Consciences must be seared. Every sin must find a lie to accompany it. Sin cannot operate without lies. And if you want to break an addiction or a bad habit or something that's dominating your life, the first thing I suggest is figure out the lie fueling it. What lies do you have to tell yourself to do what you're doing? Everybody does it, can't help it. What lies do you say to justify it? What lies do you say that says, I deserve to do this? You figure out the lie, you take a lot of the power away from the sin. And of course, the question in all of this is that for 400 years, the Hebrews were under the harsh and ruthless taskmasters of Egypt. 400 years! And they prayed. And you have to wonder, what was God thinking? What was God doing? Israel prayed for 400 years and got no answer. Israel, to their credit, never forgets the God of their fathers. And they never forget who they are. They never stop crying out to Yahweh. Israel waits on the Lord. They must wait. They don't have any choice but to wait. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must learn to wait on the Lord too. By waiting on the Lord, I don't mean passivity. I don't mean sitting on the couch with a Coke watching TV. Waiting on the Lord is a continual daily decision to trust Him, to believe in Him, to hope in Him, Waiting on the Lord says, I will trust you and obey you even in the hard times, even when I see no answers, even when circumstances scream you don't care, I am betting everything on you, I have no plan B for my life. Certainly Israel didn't. You see, suffering simplifies life enormously at times. Suffering and waiting remind me that I'm not in control of the universe or even my life. It humbles me. It drives me to my knees. Someone has said that the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think He's you. When our lives get out of control, we get the very clear message that we are not God. And it is then that we start to grow. Waiting, by the way, Jewish style, often involves complaints. The vast majorities of prayer in Scripture, if you ever take a look at it, most of the prayers in Scripture start off with complaints. Only in Israel did they believe in that time that the Creator God cared about them and would do something about their problems. And when He didn't do something about their problems fast enough, they complained. And if you don't believe me, read the Psalms. Why? 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 Wah, wah, wah. And by the way, the Bible considers this excellent praying. Excellent praying. Because, you see, complaining is a form of faith too. When you complain, you believe at some level that somebody up there is listening and somebody cares enough to listen It is an act of trust that says, God accepts me. Doubt and pain and anger and all. And that in the end, I believe if I complain enough, God just may show up. So we pray. We pray all that is in our hearts. Ben Patterson writes that if we want to love an enemy, we first have to pray our hate. That's the only way God can get at it. I would add to that. If we want to have faith, sometimes we have to pray our doubt. If we want to truly obey, sometimes in honesty with God, we have to tell God why we don't want to obey. Sometimes if we want to feel the comfort of the comforter, we must express our anger and disappointment to Him and sometimes about Him. That is how we wait, not passively, but in faith, and trusting, and yes, even complaining. Waiting on God with God changes us. Eugene Peterson writes, what God does in us as we wait is as important as what we're waiting for. Waiting weans us from all of our idols. Waiting in the end binds us to God alone. One pastor said he he had a man in his church who became sick and couldn't shake it. It went on like this for months. He was a high-energy, highly successful man. He was a man who was captain of his own fate. But this sickness stripped him down. The sickness collapsed him. He had to spend whole days and weeks housebound, idle, waiting, saving up energy just to go up and down the stairs. It was incredibly humbling. But during this time, he spent more time with his wife and children in those few months than in all the years he had known them. He read more than he'd ever read. He meditated more than he'd meditated. He prayed more than he'd ever prayed. One day he said to his pastor, I know God is trying to get my attention. I just haven't figured out what he wants my attention for. He must want me to do something. And the pastor thought a moment. And he said, maybe that's the problem. You think he wants your attention in order for you to do something for him. Maybe he just wants your attention, period. Maybe that's what God requires for most of us, our attention. Being fully present and wholly awake in each moment with him. Believing that God really is involved in our lives, even to the smallest thing. Too often we want answers. But we don't want God. Too often we want God's resources, but not if God gets too close. Waiting takes us to a place where we desperately need God. Where I have nowhere else to hide, where I have nowhere else to go where I am helpless, where I have no more options, where I have to say to God, you know where God wants to get you? He wants to get to you the place where you have to look up at Him and say, you are my only hope. Waiting makes us cling to God like nothing else. It makes us utterly dependent on Him, and that is what He wants. I have learned more from the slow journey than I ever learned by speedy success. Some of God's greatest work is done while we wait, not because we arrive. Because the real question with God is not what He wants us to do, but first what He wants us to be. Then and only then are we ready to be used. Waiting is where God forms us. He stretches us. He grows us. Waiting is the kiln where the master potter puts in the clay and forms us. And there is no other way. When Israel was suffering for 400 years, what was God up to? He was doing stuff in them. He was forming things in them. And I need to tell you this. This is a secret most people don't know. But sometimes the greatest spiritual growth happens when you are just clinging to God and thinking nothing's happening. Sometimes we grow the most just by hanging on in really tough times. Sometimes a very spiritual day sometimes is simply the fact that we didn't give up on God. Just persevering and persevering to the end. Remember the the story about the old man and, and his wife? She was old too. And they were in bed one night and she said to him, Honey, remember when we were young and you used to, we'd lay in bed and you'd hold my hand? And the old man went, he reached out and he grabbed her hand, held it. And she said, You know, remember when we were young and you used to spoon with me? And the old man grumbled and creaked and went over and started spooning with her. And she said, You remember that when we used to spoon, you used to nibble on my ear? And the old man went And he got out of bed, and started walking away. And she said, What are you doing? Where are you going? And he said, If you want me to nibble on your ear, I got to go get my teeth. I got to. <laughs> to nibble on an ear when you are young and full of hormones is one thing, <laughs> to still be nibbling. When the ear has a hearing aid in it and the perfume in the room smells a whole lot like Ben Gay, and you have to get your teeth in order to nibble, that is something else altogether. Folks, it's not how we start. It's how we hold on. Are you holding on to Jesus? Are you holding on in faith to the end? Because God is at work. God is coming. This is why we wait on the Lord. Israel waited for 400 years. Israel waited. Israel kept the faith for 400 years. Israel remembered that God never forgets His promises. And they knew that Yahweh never took His eyes off of them. They knew that not a single prayer was lost, not a groan unheard. They knew that God was there in the middle of them with their suffering. If the cross of Jesus Christ teaches us anything, it's that God embraces our pain and joins us in it so that He can help us rise above it. Israel never believed that God's attention wandered to other matters and they had been forgotten. And so they prayed and they groaned and they complained. For 400 years. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can't pray for four weeks or four months, much less four years. Israel prayed for 400 years. They believed that their God had not abandoned them. They somehow clung to the reality that their God never ceased caring for them, that their God never stopped thinking about them, that their God never stopped holding them close. That God never stopped growing them. And they believed that one day their prayers would be answered. And that's the rest of this series. is how God answered prayer after 400 years. But I want to tell you something. God may not answer prayer when you want Him to. He may not answer prayer how you want Him to. You may not even recognize the answer when it comes somewhere down the road. But I am here to tell you today, God answers prayer. And if the Hebrews could wait for 400 years, maybe we can wait on the Lord, too, in prayer, in faith. Maybe sometimes kicking and screaming and complaining, but that's okay, too, with Him. Amen? Amen. 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 I'd like the worship team to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we will pray for you for anything. But some of you, before we we do this, some of you are in dark places. Some of you, your faith is wavering. Some of you are hurting deeply this morning. And let's stop a second. And let's pray. For you, Lord Jesus, teach us to wait. Teach us to see what you're doing before the answer comes. Teach us to see how you're forming us before we get to the Red Sea. Teach us, Lord. Grow our faith. Grow our humility. Grow our trust. Make us and form us from the inside out so that when that day comes, it's time to walk across the Red Sea. We're ready to go. Help us, Jesus, in your name, to wait in faith. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this final song? And if you need prayer, please come forward. With him I know I can stand No matter what No. To dismiss, but we can. St- if you would like to stay for more prayer, we have a uh, an especially gifted prayer warrior here and a person ha- of unusual. And I use this word. I hardly. I have never used this word with anybody else. But Shanti's parents. But these are apostolic people. These are people that God used to bring the church into Nepal. And many miracles. Many many as the Bible says signs and wonders as they broke into Nepal with the gospel accompanied them and uh, Shanti's mom is here today and if you would like prayer special prayer she is here and so we're going to dismiss you but she will be here to pray with you and for you right on she's sitting right here on the front row if you really feel the need for, for, for this kind of prayer. So I'm going to dismiss us in prayer, but anybody wants to stay, uh, there's a special person here with special gifts. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name that we will walk with you. That we, Lord, will know your voice in the darkness as well as the light that we will know you closely in pain as well as joy, that we will sense your work in us, even though sometimes we don't know that work in us, that we will sense your working, even when we don't have answers. Lord, you're not asking us to give 400 years, but you are calling us, Lord, to our own journeys and to our own weights. Help us, Lord Jesus, in your name. Help us in your name to be faithful like those who have preceded us and are recorded in Scripture. In your name we ask. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.